0: My name is Hank Belfield, pastor of Providence Presbyterian Church in Chilhowee, Virginia.
1: And I'm Jay Bennett, pastor at Neon Reformed Presbyterian Church in Neon, Kentucky. And I'm Corey Page, a student from Greenville Presbyterian Theological
2: Seminary.
0: And together, we're the Geneva Mountain Boys. We want to thank you for taking some time out of your day to listen to our next podcast as we are continuing to make our way through the Apostles' Creed. We're winding down now, coming to the last few statements in this creed, and we trust that so far it has been an edification and an encouragement to your soul as we've considered together the various uh, implications of what this statement of faith has for us as God's people. We're down to the last three statements now, having covered the doctrine of the church and the communion of the saints We're now going to talk about the forgiveness of sins. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 7, we read these wonderful words. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. This portion of the Creed affirms what Paul talks about in that passage. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now, there are times, however, in which we use words that sometimes we assume everyone knows. And it's important for us as we think about what the church teaches and what Christianity believes that we define terms. Most of our listeners probably understand the concept of forgiveness or the idea of being pardoned. But some of you may not be familiar with the implications of this technical word, sin. So, brothers, let's start our conversation by defining what we mean, or more importantly, what the Apostles' Creed means and what the Scriptures mean when we talk about the category of sin. What is sin, and why do we need to be forgiven of it?
2: So the first, in speaking about what is sin, the Shorter Catechism provides an excellent answer to that question of what is sin. It says, sin is any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. So sin is uh, twofold. It is the want of conformity, which means that uh, one fails to do what God commands. And sin is also the transgression of the law of God, which means disobeying what God commands. So again, it's twofold. It's failing to do what God commands, but it's also explicitly disobeying what God said to do.
0: We talk about those in categories of sins of omission and sins of commission, right, what exactly. we omit to do and what we commit in our lives, which is a violation of, of God's holy standard. So with this definition in mind, we we can even unpack it a little bit further, Uh, sin is some sort of offense against, whether that's by omission or commission, offense against a standard, and that standard implies one who gives it. So sin has to do most directly, not exclusively, but most directly with regard to our relationship with God. Right. And here I'm thinking about what David says in the Psalms where he says against you and you only have Mm -hmm. I sinned. Of course, that's not to deny that we can sin against our neighbor. Mm -hmm. The Bible certainly affirms that. But I think there's a primacy to the recognition that even when we sin against our fellow man, we are by that sinning against God because he calls us not only to obey him, but to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so there's this sense of supremacy that sin ultimately has that vertical reality.
2: Well, thinking of the very first sin, we see this uh, sin of commission and omission. So when Adam was in the garden, when God had commanded him that he would not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that he would eat of it, he would surely die. So it was that, that he was commanded to not eat of the tree, And so when Adam committed the first sin, he not only did what God commanded him not to do, he failed to obey what God commanded also. Mm -hmm. There's a covenantal dimension
1: to this. The the early church understood the covenants, and you see that here in the Apostles' Creed um, to violate God's law in any way, whether it be a failure to conform to it or a transgression of it, is to break covenant with him. Of course, that first covenant made with Adam uh, was a covenant of works, and God gave his law to Adam as a covenant of works, um, whereby he might attain uh, to the promise of eternal life by works of obedience, by conformity to God's law. So this is a personal thing. It's not an arbitrary law. It's not that these laws exist impersonally, just out there somewhere, but they are a reflection of the very righteousness of God. Mm -hmm. And and they are a personal testimony um, to God's own holiness, his own righteousness, um, his purity. And it's what he's called us to be. He's called us to be his image bearers. He's called us to be conformed to his law, uh, to be like him. So when we sin against God, it's not just that we've broken a law, it's that we've offended the, the God of the universe, the one who created us and in generosity gave us all things.
0: And, and so what I'm hearing you brothers talk about here as well is that we talk about in theological terms, the category of original sin, mm-hmm. and then actual sin. Right. Um, would, would either one of you care to explain the distinction there? I mean, we, we've You've you've both mentioned it, but I think for the sake of our hearers, it would be helpful for us to understand the difference. What's the difference between original sin and actual sin?
1: There's definitely a logical priority between the two. Original sin comes first. Original sin has essentially three components imputed guilt from Adam based on his transgression of the first covenant, the covenant of works in the garden, uh, in which he functioned as our covenant head as our representative before God. And so as the head goes, so goes the body. Mm -hmm. Uh, as, As Adam goes, so goes all humanity born of him by ordinary generation. So that's imputed guilt. That's the first aspect of original sin. The second would be the want of original righteousness. So whereas the first component has to do with what we received from Adam, what he gave to us, he gave us his guilt, The second has to do with what he took from us when he sinned, the loss, the want of original righteousness. And then the third component uh, has to do with uh, the corruption of the whole nature. And it's from that corruption that actual sins do proceed.
2: Mm -hmm. And and that sin manifests itself in, in our thoughts, in our words. And right. in our deeds, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: So, so sin's not only an action; it's also a state of being. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, out of that being flows these transgressions. Right. Against our neighbor, it may, it against might even be God. better
1: to say a corruption of being. But mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's important. Um, yeah. Not to get too philosophical here, but uh, right. Our being as human, humans, uh, doesn't include sin. Sin no. is something that right. was a right. result of the fall. Right. But, but to simplify it and not get in, into deep waters here, um, original sin has reference to Adam's first transgression, mm-hmm. which has led to the corruption of the human race. Right. Uh, everyone born by ordinary generation are conceived and born with a sinful nature
1: mm-hmm.
0: and are under guilt and condemnation. Mm-hmm. And it's from that nature of corruption that we desire to do what is wrong, and we actually embrace doing what is wrong. Mm -hmm. We violate God's law either by refraining from that which he's explicitly commanded us to do or by embracing things which um, are a violation of that law.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, too, there's a kind of priority in the three components of original sin. There's a reason why they're listed in that order of inherited guilt, loss of righteousness, and then corruption of nature, and I think it's because the first two, which are really uh, two sides of the same coin, what we received, what we lost, those really get to the heart of the idea of breaking God's law, of breaking covenant with God, and therefore incurring guilt from God, no longer having the legal status of righteous before God. And that's a there's a priority there I think in in the way the scriptures talk about our salvation from the estate of sin and this is part of the reason why when we think about the order of our salvation how our how salvation is applied to us we we put justification prior to sanctification um, we're not saying that there's a moment that we're justified. And we're not sanctified. We don't believe that. We believe that two things happen simultaneously, and it is truly a double gift that's given by God to us. But there is a kind of logical priority between these things. I think you see it very clearly in Romans 5, 12 through 21, where Paul's dealing with these deeper covenantal issues, and he talks about uh, righteousness being restored in order that life might be restored, And so you see this logical priority between covenantal righteousness, between justification, in which forgiveness of sins is an aspect of our justification, and the renewal of life within us, which is, of course, that transformative aspect of our salvation, which is our sanctification. Well, that
0: brings me to another aspect of of this particular statement of the Apostles' Creed, and, and that is the effects of sin. And, and we talked about the effect of original sin, but I, I'm talking more generally here. When it says the forgiveness of sins, that implies that pardon is needed. So we've talked about mm-hmm. how sin is any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So there's a party here that has been sinned against. Mm-hmm. And, and Jay, you, you started touching on this, but So let's talk just briefly about what are the consequences of our sin, besides the fact of what we've already stated, that we become corrupt. I'm thinking here, what are the consequences of having offended God?
2: Well, of course, God will judge sinners for their sin by placing them into a place called hell, a place of eternal torment for their sins, for their transgressions against him. As we've already said in previous podcasts, God is holy and he's just. And so God cannot not judge sin. He has to judge sin. He's holy. As Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes, speaking of God, are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Also in Psalm 5.5 it says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes you hate all who do iniquity and then finally here uh well i have two more psalm 11:5. the lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates so just quickly before i go to my last verse god doesn't just hate the sin he hates the sinner who sins against his holy law and that's that's something that's hard for a lot of people to swallow today but it's the truth. And and finally, I have here Romans six verse twenty three. Uh, it says, "For the wages of sin is death." Wages meaning the the result of sin, what it's owed. The wages of sin is death, and so that's what our sin is owed before a holy and righteous God. We deserve death, not just physical death, but spiritual death,
1: eternally in hell.
2: Yeah, and you see and that at the that,
1: very beginning, right? When God enters into covenant with Adam, he uh, threatens death upon his eating of the forbidden fruit, his eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the death that Adam incurs there, we might say it has two aspects. It's not only a physical death, which is made virtually certain by the fact that he eats from the tree, Mm -hmm. uh, but... It's his spiritual death, uh, which is a reality. The the moment he eats from the tree, he dies spiritually before God, and it's that spiritual death, of course, that Paul has in mind when he uh, says in Ephesians two, "You were dead in your trespasses and sins." Mm-hmm. So the wages of sin is death, as as Corey just said. And yeah, so this, I think
2: the spiritual death is being separated from God's special presence from His from communion with him and fellowship. And we see that from Adam being exiled out of the garden. When he sinned, he was cast out of the garden, and he was not allowed entrance back therein by there being a cherubim guarding the door and a fiery sword, that if he would try to enter in, he would be cut down. And so it's only through God's grace that we're able to enter back into God's fellowship. And how he's done that is by that condemnation being placed upon himself through his son.
0: So what I'm trying to get at here and asking these questions and and having your brothers discuss it is because we we need to recognize that before we get to the hopeful reality, and and Corey, you're segueing into that, uh, the hopeful reality that we are forgiven, we first have to fully appreciate the fact that we need to be forgiven. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) The fact that God is holy, the fact that we are guilty, the fact that we stand under condemnation, outside of Christ, that we are enemies of the kingdom of heaven. It's only when we fully appreciate the depth of our depravity and the woefulness of our estate in sin that we can even begin to approximate the greatness of God's love and his mercy. And as you said a moment ago, Corey, that it seems like in the modern world, people want to bypass the hard truth of sin and condemnation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And they think mm-hmm. somehow they're doing people a favor by doing that. But in reality, even though it may on the surface seem to be a more pleasant and comfortable thing to do, we're not only deceiving ourselves, but we're we're robbing, at least in our minds, glory from the gospel mm-hmm. and the greatness of God's love and magnanimity. Uh, We can't fully appreciate the depth of his love until we first understand the depth of our depravity.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And so this is a very hopeful statement. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, but Mm -hmm. there's an assumption made behind that. I'm a sinner. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I've offended God. I've broken his commands. I stand condemned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so as you were saying, Corey, it goes right into the whole idea of grace. I mean, we need grace. Mm -hmm. So... There's a a sense in which, uh, Jay, you were remarking before we started our recording today how there's sort of a parallelism, Mm -hmm. and there's a sense in which we're recapitulating in a certain way, something we covered earlier in this creed, and that is the redemptive work of Christ in history. Mm -hmm. And here we're seeing the application of that redemptive work to the life of those that God has chosen for salvation. He forgives them their sin. And it's on the basis of not our own merits, but the merits of, of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that. When we talk about the forgiveness of sins, what does the forgiveness of sin accomplish besides the obvious reality that, that God says, I pardon you?
1: One of the easiest ways, I think, to kind of get your mind around what's happening is to think in terms of, uh, of images here. I think it was Michael Horton, uh, professor of systematics over at Westminster, California, who I first heard say this. And he, I don't know that he necessarily came up with it. Probably not. It's probably just something that's uh, ubiquitous uh, <laughs> within the tradition. And I just didn't know about it. But, um, you know, w- one way to think about this is in terms of images. So prior to being forgiven, everyone in the world, due to the broken covenant of works, relates to God as a condemning judge. He is a judge sitting upon his judge's chair, looking down upon us, and we are condemned in his presence. That is the fundamental relationship that we have with God in our sin. After having been forgiven, we no longer relate to God as a condemning judge, but as a loving father. Mm -hmm. So everything has changed for us. The debt that we owed, uh, the um, the rap sheet, as it were, that was um, standing against us no longer threatens us. Mm -hmm. It is gone. Um, All of our sins, past, present and future, have been canceled. Mm -hmm. The guilt of sin is done away with. And so we no longer relate to God as a condemning judge, but as a as a loving father. And we get into their kind of the, the doctrine of adoption But I think that's that's a good way to to think about what's happening and what has happened when we're forgiven our sins, just at least in big picture mm -hmm, terms. mm -hmm. And
2: that all comes down to uh, the doctrine of double imputation. So on Christ, our sins are accounted to him. And Mm -hmm. so the condemnation and guilt that we deserve are placed upon Christ. And in him, we're forgiven totally, completely, finally, for all time. And... The other part of the imputation is that his righteousness is accounted to us.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so in this imputation, it's not that our sins make Christ a sinner. He's the righteous one. But the guilt falls on him. The condemnation mm-hmm. fall, fell on him at the cross. Mm-hmm. And in me, when his righteousness is imputed to me, I don't become a sinless person in this side of glory I still sin. I still have a remnant of sin. But when God looks at me, He looks at me through the righteousness of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that that double imputation of our sins Mm -hmm. being accounted to Christ and His righteousness being accounted to me. And because of Christ's righteousness, I am adopted into His family. I am called a son of God. And I receive Mm -hmm. every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus because of Him. And how we receive that is by faith,
1: faith in him alone. I think you have a part for the whole kind of thing happening here as well. So forgiveness of sins, um, we would confess, is just part of our justification. The other part, as you just said, Corey, being the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. And those two things are very important to keep together. But here the focus is simply on the forgiveness of sins, but not to the exclusion of that other component of justification, I think, again, it's part for the whole, What really what's in view at this point mm. in the creed is the doctrine of justification. Right.
2: I, I guess the reason why I wanted to uh, emphasize that point is that we say that prior to faith in Christ, we are uh, guilty before God, and He's our judge, and now He's our Father. Mm-hmm. How He becomes our Father is not because we don't have sin anymore. Right. It's because yeah, of yeah. His righteousness. Yeah. You know, it's not by us being merely sinless that we're we gain access into this adoption. It's through his righteousness.
1: Yeah yeah, it's it's a judicial forensic legal declaration of forgiveness and of being accounted righteous before God that's in view here. And of course, all of that is dependent upon the work of Christ. I mean, looking back to the parallelism, The work of Christ is described in in terms of for us and for our salvation, right? So what what does it mean when it says for our salvation? Well, that's what we're getting into now. Uh, What have we been saved from? What have we been delivered from? Well, we've been delivered from the estate of sin. And that deliverance is the forgiveness that we've received from God. He has forgiven us our sins. And this, all, of course, all is related to the work of Christ, that he came into the world for us and for our salvation, and that he uh, lived and died a substitutionary atoning death for us. So the atonement becomes extremely important at this point. Like you were saying, Corey, our, our guilt was imputed to Christ so that he suffered the condemnation that we deserved at the cross. He uh, absorbed, as it were, all the, the wrath that we were owed um, the divine wrath that we were owed for our sins so that we might be forgiven, so that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in, in Christ Jesus. And, of course, that, that doctrine of atonement, you can see it all the way through the Scriptures. It's not just at the cross. The cross is the fulfillment, the culmination of all sorts of types and shadows that we see prior to it, particularly in the ceremonial system that God gave to Israel, uh, where an animal, an unblemished animal, could be brought forward to serve as a substitutionary atonement for the offerer.
0: Uh, just listening to you gentlemen talk, I, some some questions came to my mind that I'm wondering if maybe some who are listening might have thought of. Question number one, when we affirm the forgiveness of sins, are we saying that because Jesus died on the cross, everybody's okay? They've been forgiven? No, and then... <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, because uh, we're we're also affirming that only those who have believed in Christ have received forgiveness. And the creed kind of does get into this. I mean, I mentioned this parallel as well earlier, Hank. You know, uh, back in the section on Christ, the text says, "For us and for our salvation, Christ did these things." Well, who's the us? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean the world there, it means the church. And that's why when you get to the section on the Holy Spirit, it begins with the us. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. There's the us, the communion of saints. There's the us. And then well, for I, our salvation. So, so well, I could it's imagine assuming, it's assuming faith. I think at this point that that okay. we're forgiven by virtue of our faith union with Christ. Although we, we, I mean, we do have to acknowledge that in the early church, there was some fuzziness on this issue, to some degree, um, particularly related to the sacrament of baptism, and at, you know, at this point in the Nicene Creed, it doesn't—the creed doesn't just say we believe in the forgiveness of sins. It says we believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. And so we have to really parse out well. What do we mean by that exactly? And that can be a little fuzzy when you look at the church fathers. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I'm just thinking, uh in light of what you said, uh, Jay, that there might be some saying, No, wait a minute. John three sixteen says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And here you're telling me that it's not for the world. So uh Yeah. I can't well, let I, that one slide, Jay. You're gonna have to yeah. you're gonna have to elaborate
1: Yeah, a I'll, bit I'll more. elaborate on that one. There are different ways of thinking through that text, but I, I think I'm I'm pretty persuaded by what Calvin does there. Um there is a salvific love of God expressed to all without exception, at least all who hear the gospel. So in other words, uh, the way Calvin deals with that is he says, well, what's in view there when referring to the world? He does want to see it as a universal type expression. Uh, and I think that's being a little more honest with the text. But it's, it's not referring to the divine decree the counsel of God with respect to who this salvation is for, but it's referring to the revealed will of God with respect to who this salvation is for. So in other words, um, it's referring to the general call of the gospel, that that call should be extended to all. Just like when Jesus said in Matthew 11, come unto me, Mm -hmm. you who are weary, and I will give give you rest. I mean, he extends that call to all people, and it's a genuine offer. It's a free offer of the gospel. That is an expression of salvific love from God. It's a genuine offer of salvation to any who will come, but it's not getting into the decree of God and who will actually come, which of course God has decreed from eternity. And there's where you get into the particularity of redemption, I guess. But, yeah. um, men, before... You men before, might handle that differently. I mean, there are other ways to take that text, by the way. Uh,
2: I know we're already at the 33-minute mark, uh, but I want to ask you men, while I have the opportunity, to ask two ordained pastors, when we talk about this, of our forgiveness of sins in Christ eternally, forever through what He accomplished for us on the cross... What do you say to those who still struggle with sin, even today with with feeling guilt for their sin that they've committed? Maybe even before listening to this podcast, someone committed a sin and they still have this guilt. Uh, how would you pastor someone who's still struggling with assurance because of the sin that's still within them?
0: That's the second question I was going to ask. I mentioned earlier, you know, I have a couple questions that came to mind. and The first was, does this forgiveness of sin, this affirmation of the forgiveness of sin, mean everyone's forgiven? The answer to that is no. You have to repent and believe in order to receive that forgiveness in Christ. The second question was, well, since Jesus died for the sins of his people and they've trusted in him, does that mean that they're just sort of forgiven once and, and it's, it's all like a blanket statement and they don't need to continue to confess their sin? And, of course, the answer to that is yes and no. (laughs) In one sense, uh, it's all completely covered. But in another sense, in time and space, we continue to struggle with sin. And, Cora, you mentioned it earlier that we are still sinful. The Reformers understood that we are at the same time justified and yet still sinful. That the work of sanctification is not just a positional separation that I have in Christ, but it's it's an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to make me more and more like Jesus in thought, word, and deed throughout the days of my life appointed to live. So we continue to make mistakes. We continue to sin. Christians are forgiven sinners, but they are still sinners this side of glory. And so there is still a need on a regular basis to confess our sins. And the wonderful thing about this doctrine is that in the New Testament, we're told that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, getting to your question, I think one of the ways I would handle it, I can't speak for Jay, but one of the ways I would handle it is that we have to put the promises of God before our own emotional hearts. Mm -hmm. There are times where I don't feel forgiven. There are times where I may have a certain emotional response and I'm walking around with that sense of guilt. And it's in those moments we have to cling to the constant promise of God in the word that's repeated again and again and again. And that is, if I truly repent and confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so it is a struggle at times. Christians can really wrestle with that sense of guilt, especially when some sin that they've committed has been uh, a very serious matter. I mean, all sin is serious, but some are certainly more heinous in this life than others. And uh, at the same time, the fact that we have a, a sense of struggle with it demonstrates to me that the Holy Spirit has pricked that heart. And we have to be careful not to allow the devil or the weakness of our faith or our flesh to cause us to lose hope. Uh, You remember what the New Testament says as well, that where sin abounds, the grace of God abounds all the more. And Jesus's death on the cross atones for our sins. And so I think one of the chief ways I would handle it is to encourage someone to trust the word of God, which is faithful and true Mm -hmm. above the way I feel at the moment. Mm -hmm. Cling to those promises and ask God to give grace that I could truly feel in my heart mm-hmm. what I know in my head. Right. That's one way I would handle it.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very good. I, I, I love the question, Corey, because you really, you're getting at now the heart of the Protestant Reformation and the, really the glory of what it means to be a Protestant. Mm-hmm. I would go back to, I agree with what Hank just said, and mm-hmm. I, I think that's the fundamental starting place is just to go back to, well, are you thinking about this in a Protestant way? And the way I would want to reinforce that is to go back to those images of the law court and the house, right? So you can think about uh, life in general in two respects. You can think about it in terms of law court, so being in a court of law, or you can think about it in terms of being in a house as a member of the household. Anytime I've ever stepped into a court of law, whether it was because I was the one accused or because I was on a jury or whatever, always had this sense of foreboding, like this there's this sense of solemnity. It's not set up so that you feel a sense of kinship with the judge. There's mm-hmm. there's an intentional distance there. And that's appropriate because mm-hmm. you want the judge to be unbiased. You want the judge to judge according to the law and not according to you know, some kinship that he feels with the person that's on trial and that sort of thing. In Protestantism, we keep those two things very much separate. When we think about justification, we're thinking law court. We're thinking in terms of eternal destiny. And when it comes to our justification, we have been fully and finally forgiven. We have been acquitted of every sin, past, present, and future. God has already, for those who have been justified by faith, he has already pronounced his final verdict. It's already happened. So there's, there's no way that that verdict can be rescinded, can be changed in any way. We have been forgiven, period. And it's because of that forgiveness that we are now a part of his household. So this is what Paul's getting at in Romans 8 and verse 1, when he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Condemnation, that's law court. That's justification territory. We've been acquitted. There is no condemnation. But God hasn't simply acquitted us and then just sent us along our way. No, God has acquitted us." and brought us into his own house and made us his children. And while there is no condemnation for us, he is a loving father who will discipline his children when they sin against him. He would be unloving if he didn't discipline us when we sin against him. But his judgment against our sin in the context of the household of faith, in the context of being an adopted child, is not condemnation it's again loving discipline that's meant to lead us to repentance that we might walk the peaceful path of righteousness and and produce that fruit of righteousness in our lives so when someone comes to me with the sense of guilt and a loss of assurance of salvation and these kinds of things i would always want to begin there and say look as, as you experience this guilt you understand that if you've trusted in christ there is no condemnation for you right and just start there your your eternal security is not in jeopardy, and, and then begin to flesh out, well, why do you feel these, ha- have these feelings of guilt? Are they legitimate? There is such a thing as false guilt. I think there are a lot of people in the church today who struggle with false guilt because they're being taught a standard other than the word of God, other than God's law. And so let's talk about the sense of guilt. Well, um, maybe the person feels guilty because they only shared the gospel with two people today and not four. I've had someone come to me before and tell me that and they felt terrible. And I said, "Brother, you realize you're like 200% ahead of pretty much everyone else in the Christian church." I said, "Well, I said, "Where do you find this in the Bible that you have to share the gospel with four people or you're or you're being sinful?" And of course they couldn't. And so they're walking around with false guilt. And so I tell, you know, I would encourage them to be very careful. Now, if if it is a a clear-cut case of sin, Mm -hmm. for instance, if if they've been staring at pornography all day and and they feel guilt, I say, well, that's good. You should feel guilty. You are guilty. (laughs) You you sinned against the Father who loves you, and He's going to take you out to the woodshed now, and it's not going to be pleasant. All discipline seems painful Mm -hmm. in the moment. But know this, it's for the purpose of bringing you to repentance. And repentance is a moment. I mean, you come to God, you repent of your sin and your fellowship with him is restored. You know, it's the restoration of the prodigal son. That happens in a moment. The mm-hmm. the father doesn't see the son coming and go, "Wait just a minute. You stay over there for a while until you clean yourself up and then we can have fellowship with one another." No, it's immediate. He welcomes the son back in and and it's through that fellowship that the son can then begin to heal mm-hmm. and grow in his righteousness and devotion to his father so it's the same it's the same thing with christians so i I would go through some of those things with the person but of course it would i mean that that was a very fast version of it it would take time to do that with someone yeah
0: well i think at this juncture we should close this particular episode of our podcast but i want to in light of that last question you asked Corey, offer the word of god which gives us hope of the forgiveness that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd like to read just a short portion of Psalm 130. There we hear these words. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, And in his word I do hope. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. He shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So, dear listener, I hope you take comfort and consolation from this wonderful doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. It's more than just in the Apostles' Creed, which is just a man-made summary. It's in the Scriptures. God, who is holy and just and will by no means acquit the guilty, is also merciful, loving, and kind. And in his Son, who died on the cross for sinners, there is the forgiveness of sins. It is a hopeful message. And those who truly repent and look to Christ in faith are promised according to the trustworthy word of God that their sins will be pardoned and they will be reconciled. So I hope you have that hope. I hope you have that peace today. I hope that you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I'm Hank Belfield for the Geneva Mountain Boys. We're glad you've joined us today may the Lord bless you.